Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? John, I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Excellent. I am too. Sounds like you're a little bit sick. Uh, come, yeah, come, the back end of a little bit of congestion. So. I'm glad you're feeling better. Today's yeah. another busy day at St. Matthew's, Matthew's Catholic School here in uh, Kalispell, Montana. By the way, uh, did you know that I'm a star now, Mark? I did not know you. How are you a star? Have you seen the St. Matthew's promo video? No. It's incredible. And you're in it. You're featured. I am the voice of it. Are you really? Yeah, I'm never, I'm never actually shown. But I'm reading a pretty epic script uh, over Batman theme music. Our <laughs> children are dressed like Saint George and soldiers and medical workers. It's okay. Where where do epic. I see this? Where do our our listeners get to see this? It's on Saint Matthew's Catholic School Facebook page. Okay, and is that I've not seen a YouTube link yet? Okay, probably and there too. It, it it is Saint spelled out, or how do they find this? S T S T. Okay, yeah. So uh, even if you don't live in Montana, why not give our school some money, you know? <laughs> why We're not? great people. <laughs> We're doing great things here. Uh, our bishop believes Jesus is doing great things here. But this is not a promo video uh, for my school, even though I'm employed here. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which is a continuation of our atonement discussion. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the other end. We've really been focusing on Christ's passion, his death, and now we're going to be looking at his emergence from death, his victory over it. But before that, I want to go back to uh, Genesis 3 with our companion and guide along the way, St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius was a 4th century church father and bishop. Uh, he is revered uh, as a saint in the Catholic and Orthodox Church, and um, deeply loved by a lot of Protestants uh, who are familiar with church history. Uh, he is known as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius Against the World, uh, because, uh, well, obviously n not every Christian in the world was a heretic. Uh, we believe in the providence of God, but there is a very major heresy at the time that uh, denied the divinity of Christ, known as Arianism. Athanasius was courageous enough and clear-headed enough to defend Christ's divinity, but not only really to defend his divinity, um, but also to really tell the story of the gospel in the most comprehensive and succinct work mm. I have ever read. It's called On the Incarnation. And he starts On the Incarnation with a reflection on uh, not only our need for a savior, but precisely what our need for salvation consisted of. I want to read a couple quick quotes from him, uh, because in addition to being clear, it's also very beautiful and poetic. Okay, so set this up. It's, it's no point for me to give page numbers because it's written weird. Uh, but uh, this is at the beginning, okay? So I'm going to skip around here. These are the words of St. Athanasius. For God has not only created us humans from nothing, but also granted us by the grace of the word to live a life according to God. But human beings turned, turning away from things eternal, and by the counsel of the devil, turning us toward things of corruption, were themselves the cause of corruption in death, being, as we already said, corruptible by nature, 
but escaping their natural state by the grace of participation in the word, had thee remained good. Translate that real quick. God created us as finite beings. He created us from the dust, which means that by nature, we humans were mortal even prior to the fall, but by our participation in the life of God, through faith, through love, through communion with God, by grace, we were immortal. When Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of the devil to be like God, not through communion and companionship, but through grasping, through disobedience, through self-reliance, they actively chose to stop participating in the life of God. This is mortal sin. Mortal sin is not, I ran a stop sign. Uh, mortal sin is, no thank you, I don't want to participate in the life of God. And God, uh, though he grieves that choice, he respects that choice when he made it. So Adam and Eve fell in, basically um, collapsed in upon their own nature without divine grace. They were reduced to mortality. Back to Athanasius, because of the word present in them, even natural corruption did not come near them before the fall, just as wisdom says. This is a quote from the Book of Wisdom now in the second chapter, which if you're a Catholic, this is part of our Bible. God created the human being for incorruptibility and an image of his own eternity. But by envy of the devil, death entered into the world. I'm going to read that again. Mm. God created the human being for incorruptibility and an image of his own eternity. But by the envy of the devil, death entered into the world. So Athanasius spends the next page describing how um, the spiritual death that entered our souls, we acted out through sin. And uh, in fact, sin increased. He basically paints the, chick the picture of Genesis chapter 4. We go from eating fruit we're not supposed to, to brother killing brother. First fratricide. You then go on. Genesis highlights some really awful stuff. Genesis alludes to some really bad stuff that if it were spelled out in detail, the Bible would be rated X. Uh, the Apostle Paul references is Romans chapter 1. And it's a good <coughs> biblical insight here if you look at what Paul um, says here. That the fall is not a singular event, but a downward process that begins with Adam and Eve. We keep on falling more and more and more. Okay? And this is what it uh, occasions the flood. Athanasius then continues to say this. For these reasons then, with death holding greater sway and corruption remaining fast against human beings, the race of humans was perishing, and the human being made rational, and in the image was disappearing, and the work made, my God, made by God was being obliterated. Uh, come down here. It says, Therefore, since the rational creatures were being corrupted and such works were perishing, what should God, being good, do? Permit the corruption prevailing against them and death to seize them? What need was there for their coming into being at the beginning? It was not proper to have for them to come into being rather than have to come... I'm sorry, this is worded weird. I'm just going to say it this way. My words now. Athanasius' point is that it is not... Uh, fitting to the goodness of God, A, that humans whom he had created to share in his own life would not share in his life. And God would just say, ugh, bad choice. Oh, well. Number one, because God does not change. Because God does not change, 
God will not forsake his purpose for Adam and Eve, even when Adam and Eve have said no. God, being God, being Trinity, being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, being love, being without change, he's going to do something to bring humanity back to their original nature, back to their original purpose. But here's the dilemma. For those very same reasons, God will not go back on his word. It was God who says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And this was not simply an arbitrary punishment. This was actually the organic consequence of choosing a life away from God. So God does not make our choices for us on the one hand. Um, But on the other hand, it is not the character of God to just be okay with our bad choices. Um, God's not going to consign humanity over to the devil, even though the devil has basically hoodwinked us into making a really bad choice. So what is God going to do? Well, he spends the next 45 pages explaining why this is why the word of God became flesh. Um, This is the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. The Son of God becomes human to recreate the human race. And this is a lot of what we discussed in the atonement episode. But today we want to dial in specifically on Christ's resurrection. Um, How God fulfilled his promise that we would die, but that he himself died in order to conquer death. Which is a good point, a good tie-in, that as we talk about the resurrection, to really highlight and to begin with the incarnation. Because yeah. <clears throat> like you said, it's God could have maybe sat up in heaven and just said, well, I can forgive. Yep. But if the problem that we've been talking about for you know this entire series, if the problem is what we have become, we've become corrupted, we've become fallen, we've, uh, and relationship with God has been severed, not just because, well, we've committed sin, and you know maybe or maybe maybe not God can be in the presence of sin, you know, yeah. Uh, but it it this is ontological. In other words, it has to do with our very being. That's right. Relationship with God was severed because the image was damaged. Mm-hmm. So to your point, and I think that, that it's crucial, like that we do start with the incarnation as we move to the resurrection, because it's about fixing human nature. It's about mm-hmm. returning us to that state that actually can enter into deep fellowship with God, or as the fathers say, union. Uh, it kind of freaks out modern people to say, well, union with God, you know. What is it? Um, but just think of it as all of our being, body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotion, restored to be able to have that deep, profound relationship and union with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to reiterate, Mark, because it's so important, forgiveness is absolutely necessary absolutely. to enter heaven. It is completely yeah. essential, but it's not the only essential thing no. to enter into heaven. We have to, active, we have to be made heavenly beings. Right. Right. Uh, we have to be restored from corruption. From death, from sin, and that's not just forgiven. As you're saying, Mark, our very being has to be changed. Because yeah. in in one sense, forgiveness doesn't. I want to be careful how I say this because you're right. Absolutely, forgiveness is necessary, but doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Yeah, you can pronounce forgiveness over somebody, and and I think this is the the weakness of the courtroom only imputed righteousness mm-hmm. uh, theory or aspect of this is just because God made a declaration, that may be part of it, but at least Mm -hmm. in Catholic theology, God makes the declaration of 
your righteousness because he actually made you righteous. It's not a sham trial. It's not a Correct. fake trial. Uh, he's not saying something about us that isn't ontologically true. Yeah, and I think this is why the Catholic Church who has the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, which is all about mm-hmm. forgiveness, uh, you know we classify sacraments, so we have two sacraments of initiation in the Christian life. We'll talk about this more uh, in a later season. Baptism and confirmation. Well, we have two sacraments of healing. What's interesting is the sacraments of healing are um, unction, anointing of the sick, but reconciliation. So the grace that's being given to someone who confesses their sins to the Lord through a priest is not only that they are forgiven. They are forgiven. That's what the absolution accomplishes. But there's also some mysterious form of healing of the soul that's taking place as well. Um, so we're not certainly not trying to pin these things against each other. I think what we're, we're both trying to do is actually show that these two things are always two sides of the same coin. Right. That forgiveness and restoration are always related. So the d- divine dilemma is not only how do Adam and Eve be forgiven, which is a more, we talked about Anselm, that's more of his way of understanding the atonement. It's also Athanasius's point as well. How do, how do Adam and Eve and their children get rescued from the clutches of death? How do they get changed from the inside out? And, and this, I think, is reflected really beautifully in Mark chapter 2. You've got the healing of the paralytic. Uh-huh. And uh, this the story where they bring him down through the roof, and Jesus pronounces him forgiven. Mm-hmm. And the Pharisees have a real problem with that. Because uh, they, they say, and I like Mark's version better than Matthew's version, because it says, uh, you know, they wondered in their hearts, who can, do, who can forgive sins but God alone? They recognize that Jesus is uh, exercising divine prerogative to forgive. And so he asks the question, which is easier, to tell this man he's forgiven or to heal him? Mm-hmm. And it's actually a trick question, because both are, it's, it, only God can do both. And Jesus is actually going back to Psalm 103, verse 3, where it says, Always praise the Lord who, for, who uh, forgives all our sins and heals our ills. Mm-hmm. And the connection between forgiveness and some sort of physical restoration. That's and right. so you see the, in, in this healing of the paralytic, he did extend forgiveness, but there was actual healing that took place, which I think is, is a picture of that, recon- that sacrament of reconciliation. Yep. We're a body-soul unity. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to dive in real quick to um, the event of the resurrection itself. But before someone can be risen from the dead, they have to die. So I'm going to make real quick one quick point about Christ's death. So um, we started Lent this week, mm-hmm. which is anticipation of the Triduum, the three great days, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter. So the focus of this episode is going to be on Easter, but you need Good Friday and Holy Saturday to understand what's going on. So Friday, as our listeners will know without this podcast, is the sixth day of the week. Check my math there. Sixth day, okay? Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are created on the sixth day. Now, this is not something that I came up with in Scripture or that I probably would have ever realized. This is an insight of the church fathers, the early Christian bishops we read. They point out that when Christ from the cross, his last words given to us in the Gospel of John are, it is finished, which raises a good question. What's finished? Many things. But what they thought was the primary thing 
the creation, the recreation of Adam and Eve is completed. Um, and this is really beautiful. So you think about um, it's the sixth day of creation that Christ hangs on the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, we know from Genesis chapter 2 that it, Adam is cast into a deep slumber before Eve can be formed from him, a slumber that's symbolic of death itself. Well, the last Adam, Christ, he actually dies. And he says, it is finished as he descends into a slumber of death through which the church will be born. Okay, so we got that in Good Friday. Then we have uh, Holy Saturday where Christ is dead, literally dead. Uh, That's a mystery. Uh, Some Protestant reformers had issue with it. He really died. Um, And we get this really fun and fascinating phrase as Catholics, the harrowing of hell, Um, that Christ's death looks like a defeat. Um, Death always looks like a defeat, but paradoxically, it's a victory. Why? Because he has paid a penalty, death. Death is the penalty of sin to one to whom he doesn't owe that penalty, the devil. Christ is, he's not a sinner. So Christ descends to the dead. This is bad news for the devil, okay? Because the devil has basically invited Christ into his own living room. You can imagine Jesus starts rearranging furniture. He's taking things from the devil. He's setting people free. And this is why prior to the resurrection on Easter Sunday, uh, it says in Matthew's gospel that saints of old start walking out of tombs and they go around the city spreading the good news. I feel really sorry now for the Pharisees that tried to keep this quiet. Um, I don't know how you keep that quiet. But dead people start going, okay? So then we come to Easter Sunday. Mark, did you have something I'll, yeah. to prepare for this? Uh, and this is where you get in John chapter 20. Uh, there's so much of that recreation imagery. Uh-huh. Jesus is in a garden. He, he's actually mistaken for the gardener by Mary. Okay, yeah. what's the significance of being born, uh, buried and raised in a garden? Well, as you mentioned, you go back to the Garden of Eden. That's where humanity was lost. That's where humanity fell. That's where creation, the cosmos, was now stained and corrupted and infected with sin. It's where sin and death and evil were unleashed into God's good creation. Mm-hmm. It's where humanity died. And so with that first Easter morning, as Jesus raises from the tomb in a garden— what is now unleashed into the cosmos on planet Earth and on fallen humanity is the uh, the inauguration of the new creation. Mm-hmm. That the, that right, as you said at the beginning, this is about rescue from death. So uh, the paradigm of of Exodus, escape from slavery and the rescue of death. That what Jesus came to do is to bring life to completely flip the script where we the world was under the tyranny and characterized by sin, death, evil, tyranny to Satan. God took that whole uh, old age, that present evil age, it dies with Jesus, mm-hmm. that what might rise now is new life, qualitatively different kind of life for uh, the cosmos. And so when, when John talks about eternal life, uh, God gave his son in incarnation— that we might have eternal life. Uh, some people, uh, we have this idea that, okay, well, one day I get to go to heaven, I'm not going to die. I have yeah. this eternal life. I have this never-ending life. No, eternal life is the God kind of life now. It's that 
repairing the relationship with God that you might share in his life here and now. And John is pretty clear in his presentation of the gospel that eternal life is here, it's now, it's to be participated in. It's how we come back to that deep fellowship and union with God is because we partake of the God kind of life that burst into human history that Easter morning in that garden. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you remind me of two things, Mark. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 3, and mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite <clears throat> songs from my favorite California rocker, John Foreman and Switchfoot. John 17, 3, Jesus in his prayer to his Father in heaven for us in the Garden of Gethsemane says, and this is eternal life, to know you, yeah. Father, and the Son whom you have sent. Yeah. So this is eternal life to know God, yeah. which, yes, we don't know God fully, obviously. Right. And in heaven, we actually won't either right. because he's God. He's infinite. Right. But we begin to know God in this right. life. That's part of our yeah. salvation. So eternal life yep. does begin in this life. Yeah. And uh, the way... Uh, oh, such a good song. Uh, <laughs> John Foreman begins the album Vice Versus by Switchfoot with the epic lines, I've tasted fire, I'm ready to come alive. Mm. But then the chorus is, Every day the world is made a chance to change, but I stay the same, and I wonder why would I wait till I die to come alive. I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. Yeah. And yeah. it's a theme that comes up for the album over and over again, mm. that salvation, the afterlife, begins in this life. And that's actually in the resurrection itself. Yeah. Um, Jews, you look at the book of Daniel, they had an expectation of the resurrection, but they thought that resurrection would be the end of history. Like, and the way that we as Christians expect the final judgment, they believe the resurrection would not occur until the final judgment. But then when you have the Son of Man, who's prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, come mm. and be falsely condemned and rejected by the world, die in this life, and be resurrected in this life, it is a very, this is why the apostles not only believe in Jesus, but it's why they're so fearless. The end of the ages actually has begun. God has begun the work of new creation, exactly what you're saying about the garden. God is making things new now. And and I think that is so important for us to to think about in terms of how we live our life. So when Jesus says, uh, I've come to give life and life abundantly, uh, if we think in terms of material possessions or status or anything that the secular world can give, obviously we've, we've completely missed it. So what might Jesus mean by, I've come to give you life and life abundantly? It's uh, going back to Augustine that it it's rightly ordering our loves. It's detaching us from the love of this world, mm-hmm. the things of this world, the things that ultimately can't satisfy. So when Augustine says, "You've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you," uh, and not and not etern- well, I mean, obviously the fulfillment of that eternally, but we can have that rest now. But mm-hmm. that means we have to get rooted out of our hearts the things that attach us to. And he, he was clear, you know, you can en- use the things of the world. I mean, that's fine. But you can yeah. only enjoy God. And enjoyment being that which finds, uh, in which your soul finds rest and satisfaction. Yeah. So I think if we, again, with the whole resurrection comes this ability to have life and life abundantly, that we get our loves, our cares, our anxieties, the things that the world sucks us into, we get detached from that that we might be able to focus and, and have our loves reordered, have body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions reoriented toward 
this profound relationship with God. So you can have eternal life now. We can have life abundantly. But it's only found, as you as you said, in participation in the life of God. It doesn't matter what the world throws at us, what it tries to allure us with. The only way we will find rest for our souls is if we find it in this profound relationship in the life of God. Yeah. And there are just countless, countless principles that emerge for life from the holy mystery of the resurrection. Yeah. I'm thinking of so many. Um, I well, mean, we could think about Lent and self-denial, but I think about the martyrs of the early church too. Yeah, The resurrection is what drives the early Christians not to be afraid of death. Yeah. Really ticked Nero off. Because, I mean, for every other movement, you just start killing people. Right. People give up, okay, this isn't working. Plan B, a uh, new Jewish Messiah. Or plan B, a uh, new political scheme. What makes Nero so mad is that he kills Christians and, and they don't even like get that sad. They just well, it, keep and the going movement, for it. The, the movement grows. Yeah. They, Christianity ends up taking over the empire. And at one point, one of his magistrates asked, do you Christians not have cliff, cliffs to jump off of or seas to drown yourself in? Like, you're so ready to die for your Lord. It made no sense to them. Yeah. It was because uh, Christ, one of the things that makes Christianity unique in all religions is that it believes in the absolute defeat of death. Yeah. We're the only religion that sees death as unnatural and that death itself has an expiration date. It won't be this way forever. And when you're unafraid of death, I mean, Hebrews 2, chapter 14, describes Christ as rescuing us from the one who held humanity captive through the fear of death. That is the devil. Christ rescued humanity from the fear of death. And that obviously really changes the way people live. Well, and I got to be honest, be honest with our listeners here. That's why I really like this Lenten season. Uh, It's been a good couple of first days. I'm Uh really looking forward uh, to the remainder because, you know, I, I say this, but I'm pointing to myself. There, I love this season of reflection and repentance and getting my own loves and desires and wants and passions in line. Because there are so yeah. many things, if I'm honest, that I, I look to the world for comfort or faith and checking the news. And that's one of the things I'm doing this land is like no more news because I'm, I'm yeah. waiting. I'm waiting for that breaking story. That's going to be able to tell me, okay, the world's going to be okay. We all want good news. We all want good news. And, yeah. and I want that. I want that news story that said they found something. Somebody was arrested. Something happened that all okay. the world leaders became not idiots. Over <laughs> yeah. And by doing this, like, no, Jesus sits on the throne of the universe, and I have to trust him. I have to trust his plan. I have to trust the Father that whatever's going on in 2022, he is not out of control. But I have to submit to that and be okay with how he's going to run the world. And then the things that my own heart is attached to. Yep. My, my disordered loves, the things that I... Uh, try and enjoy even though I should only be using it. So uh, this idea of a good, uh, a good life, life abundantly, relationship with God, I speak to myself. And as, do I put enough stock in the resurrection? Have I really pressed into God enough to say, God, I want your life and your life only? Yep. The church fathers were convinced that uh, our fear of death, if unhealed, actually keeps us enslaved to sin. Uh, 
and this is going to go a little bit dark and weird real fast. I apologize to your listeners. If you're under 12, close your eyes, ears. Uh, but there's a good article on first thing it asks, why is our society so obsessed with sex? Like, why has mainstream media gone basically pornographic, like, everywhere? And I thought it was a really good argument. Like, you know, we humans, we've always, we have a sex instinct. Always have. And until it's transformed into some higher form of eros, because procreation is unnecessary in heaven, we're going to. But we're different than that. We, like, make everything about it. And the argument made that convinced me is it's because of our fear of mortality. Mm. We're fear of age. And um, so obviously there's a good side to Eros um, when chased. I mean, a man and woman create life. There is an echo of immortality. But there's also at the same time, just like you're not afraid of dying when you're high on cocaine. Mm. <laughs> and if we keep ourselves constantly stimulated, constantly titillated, then we are repressing, we're hiding our fears. So it's that fear of, I don't want to be old. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to feel pain. Why? Because those are basically the tremors of death, the way that tremors in the earth are tremors of an earthquake, that big thing that's coming. But if we're unafraid of death, then what we're afraid of is not pain. What we're afraid of is not really living. And this reminds me of St. Irenaeus's quote, the glory of God is a man fully alive, which is about Easter Sunday. And the glory of man is a vision of God. So what we ought to be afraid of is not mistreatment, calamity, sad things in life. What we need to be afraid of is not really living. And uh, the, the crucifix reminds us um, being crucified with our Lord always results in resurrection, period. No exceptions. So we don't have to run away from those things. We don't have to work for some form of worldly escape um, from weakness. We have to simply embrace it with our Lord and trust that uh, he's already making things new and he's not going to stop. And you, you mentioned uh, wearing the crucifix of it. But Protestants ask, well, you know, we Protestants, we always have an empty cross. Yeah. Why, why do Catholics always have a crucifix? Um, <clears throat> and I think you make a good point. It is that constant reminder that it, it is the passion, the, the total passion. Well, actually, it, it's his birth, life, death, teaching, resurrection, ascension, yep. and return and glory, all of that. Um, so we don't necessarily want to focus on one thing overly much, but um, it is that path to life and remembering my own need to exactly what we're talking about die to those things of the world in order that i might live so i'm not afraid of a crucifix that well you you constantly have jesus dying you constantly are sacrificing him over and over no we're not but if you have just just and maybe i should wear too an, an empty cross and a crucifix uh yes the resurrection takes us into new life but i have there's parts that i have to die that's in right. order to experience the blessing of the resurrection and i never yeah. want to rem i never want to forget because then i'm only focused on on the benefits it's only well here's all the good things i get well yeah, yeah. I, I do but it's because i go through it. not that he dies again yeah and my loves my passions need to be rightly ordered um so yeah I, I'm, I, well, I'm not afraid of a crucifix i'm not afraid to it, it's about entering into that death 
in order that I might live. Yeah. Well, uh, all my friends forgive me if I'm being too cheeky here. But if anyone uh, really doesn't like the crucifix, I'd say blame it on Christ's beloved disciple. Because when he has a revelation of Christ and he hears the mighty roar of the Lion of Judah, that resurrected, glorified, transfigured Lord, who he sees and hears in chapter 1, he hears that voice, he turns around, what does he see? A lamb who is slain. Mm. Uh, Because Christ is God, um, because he is eternal, somehow mysteriously all the moments of his humanity are mystically present together. So in his resurrection, he is the Lord who is crucified, and he reigns from his cross. And what's cool, too, is you go further in Revelation. I'm not going to guess the chapters in case I get it wrong. Um, But Christ describes him as the lamb who is slain from the Mm -hmm. foundation of the world. And this is why Thomas Aquinas speaks of uh, the scars in Christ's hands as his trophies of victory, that Christ is crucified and is resurrected in the present tense because Jesus Christ, uh, Hebrew says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that love expressed in his self-offering for us sinners is just as present as his um, being seated at the right hand of the Father, just as present as birth in the manger because um, he is present to us. Yeah. And uh, I think this re- relates back to the point that you just made. If, if all of that is true, and it, it's this present thing that we're able to enter into, that it's the fear of not living. Yeah. That, that the, we turn to the things of a secular world. We turn to the things of the flesh. Uh, and I think that's a good point. Maybe that's a, a point of reexamination. Is it because we're afraid that we won't truly live? Yeah. And yet, it's, it's actually dying to those things, being separated from those things. Stop trying to enjoy them as if they could bring uh, life and uh, refreshment and rest, rest to our hearts uh, in order that we might truly live, which would be the life of God and a totally different way to do this thing we call life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I never, bet we've talked for... Yeah, did we actually get minutes. to the resurrection? <laughs> uh, kinda, yeah, you kinda described kinda him being seen as a gardener. What okay. else do you want to say about it, Mark? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, just that uh, just that whole chapter. I, I guess it, the fact that he's he's raised again in a garden, and what is inaugurated is new life. So, and John even closes that chapter, that that first conclusion, that. Uh, he writes these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. So John ends the paragraph, he ends the story of the resurrection in a garden, mm-hmm. telling his audience, okay, I've told you this story, that if you come to faith in this, you can have life in his name. Mm-hmm. So, Forgiveness is a part of that. Obviously, we got to have forgiveness, but that comes with life. Yeah. We haven't talked about a whole lot of the historical stuff, which is probably better. Um, there are lots of good resources on it. Uh, if anyone has questions about the historicity of the resurrection, um, N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican bishop, well, he's retired as a bishop, but he's an Anglican scholar. Um, he's probably, I would guess, one of, if not the best historians of the resurrection mm-hmm. right now. Uh, he's got... Uh, big academic book devoted to it, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. 
He's also got a more popular book, which is probably his most popular book he's ever written, called Surprised by Hope, about the resurrection. And he's just got that British wit. For instance, um, he responds to a German theologian of the 20th century who, who doubted the historicity of Christ's resurrection because, quote, modern people don't believe in resurrection from the dead. And T. Wright was like, you know, pre-modern people weren't stupid. They yeah. knew that if you died, you died. That's <laughs> why uh, none of Christ's apostles expect, expect it. And John's gospel is very clear. Even after his resurrection, they were so shocked. They didn't know quite how to understand it. I mean, Thomas himself was like, I'm not going to believe. Well, he yeah. meets Christ in John chapter 1, and he believes. Um, but I think there's so many directions that you can go with that, but I think just the main thing to be taken is like um, crucifixion reveals the way things are in this world. Like it's, it's where sin takes us to in our relationship with God, whereas resurrection is not of this world. It's something that is not of nature, that God breaks into nature to accomplish. Mm -hmm. It's signified in nature. Christ talks about unless a seed die and fall to the earth, it cannot um, bear fruit. Uh, so there are signposts of resurrection within the created order, um, but resurrection is something that breaks into yeah. history. It breaks into time. It shocks us. It confounds us because it's not, um, it's not within our own potential. Resurrection is not self-improvement. It's resurrection. Yeah. It's something was dead, hopeless, gone, 10 feet under, and now it's not. And all that hope, it comes not from some principle. It comes from a person, that Christ yeah. was six feet under, whatever, in the cave in Jerusalem you can go visit. And he is not. It is empty. And I can't wait to celebrate that Amen. in a few weeks. you have any closing thoughts, Mark? Uh, no, just... It if you, I would encourage everybody, if you don't have any Lenten practices, uh, there's lots of good sources online, please do. I think it'll, you'll find it incredibly enriching and profound. And it will make the celebration of Easter just that much, that much more enjoyable. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure as always, John. Yes, sir. <laughs>